Welcome to the Biscos Pediatric Orthopaedic Digest or podcast. It's a panel discussion of what we regard as the most interesting published papers of relevance to paediatric orthopaedic surgeons. Please do remember the views are our own and not those of the Biscos board, committees or membership. Right. Hello, everyone. This is the BizCos podcast. And as you can tell from our theme tune today, it's a coronation special. Uh, just a few days after the coronation of King Charles III. Is it the third? It is the third, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm on it. I'm on it. You can tell. So uh, today it's me, Anish Singrajka. We've got Alpesh Katari. We've got Hello. And we've got the special guest star, Claire Carpenter. Hey! <laughs> right, thanks for joining us, Claire. Um, yeah, you know how it works, guys. We're going to talk about some papers. We're going to talk to Claire. Uh, Alpesh, are you going to find out if there's anything big in Claire's life? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, hi, Claire. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, as you know, the first part of the podcast is, is to focus on our guest. Um, opportunity for the listeners to find a bit, uh, a bit more about you, your practice, your unit, what floats your boat? Um, so, Claire Carpenter, tell us about yourself. Okay, so uh, Claire Carpenter is a paediatric orthopaedic consultant in Cardiff. So, I work along with my uh, four colleagues now, uh, Declan O'Doherty, Sandy Pamadi, Phil Thomas and Simon Humphreys at the um, fairly new Noah's Ark Children's Hospital for Wales. Um, and I've been in consultant practice now for the last 11 years. Um, I turned 50 a month ago and have... No way. Yes, way. <laughs> I am 50 years old. I feel it. The hangover <laughs> lasted the that kit. long. You're going the kit. Guys, where were you? Yeah, you absolutely. Don't 50 years old. <laughs> uh, I have... Two children. Erin, my eldest, is doing her A levels at the moment, and Harry, my fifteen-year-old, is first year of his GCSEs. And whoa, that is much tougher than going to work. <laughs> no one ever warned you about parenthood. So, um, got a few things going on. Um, current concepts. Did I say current concepts? <laughs> What's that, Claire? Never did I, heard did of I mention current concepts? No, tell um, us more. <laughs> I, I'll tell you about that shortly. Um, I'm a training programme director for the Welsh Deanery and I'm national clinical lead for paediatric orthopaedics uh, for our new strategy to try and dig orthopaedics out of... Um, out of COVID. So that's still ongoing. So that I've got quite a lot on my plate at the moment. Yeah, that um, sounds like it. Yeah. Do you want to start with current concepts? Well, I was going to say- is it, current concepts. I was, I was reading your bio. It, it, as I say, every time we do this, it's, it's, it's great to kind of nosy into what people are up to. So it seems that you're a massive sort of Canberra file Anything Welsh is, is, is you, you're very keen on and you're taking on the programme directing and the head of PEDS also. Formative years in Wales, even fellowship in New South Wales. So that's pretty good. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I was going to say you must be extremely proud to bring it home, bring current concepts home um, this, this summer. So I thought, yeah, as everyone's intimated, that it's a great opportunity to whet everyone's appetites with uh, what's what what we're going to expect in June in just under a month or just over a month's time. Yeah. So five weeks tomorrow, we will, uh, will be day one. Um, so just over three years ago now, I went to Edinburgh and I saw what Emily delivered with regards to the current concepts and the up there. And it was an absolute uh, education fest, um, a networking fest. It was great fun. And it, there was a lot of pressure, actually, in order to try and 
well, and I still haven't delivered, but to try and deliver something of, of such high quality. So, so for me, um, my aim was to have high concentration within three days of really valued educational experience. And what I did, I sat and I kind of thought to myself, over the last sort of three to five years, what um, what things had eluded me within my practice? What were the answers that I, I needed to know? What's changed? What do we really want to know about updates? So, so as a consultant, I thought um, we needed to focus current concepts on really giving short updates as, as almost a revalidation exercise and a benchmarking exercise for our colleagues. Um, it's got a lot of traction with, we are now very much a multi-professional team uh, within paediatric orthopedics. And actually the concept has got a lot of traction with our allied health professionals. And so it was an opportunity to pitch to them and to give them um, the platform as well in order uh, to educate us all uh, uh, along these lines. Um, and also, to um to provide an opportunity for up and coming new pediatric orthopedic uh trainees uh to come along uh, and also add to the um uh to their education as well so so i'm hoping long term that we get current concepts embedded into the consultant education revalidation cycle so every three years, it's on our calendar that we all attend. And it's, and it's not something that's there for trainees. It's not something that's there for, for because you know it all already. It's update, um, it's reval. And so moving forward, I'd really like to, to think people plan ahead and put it in their, in their um, academic timetable. Great, thanks, Claire. So what, any um, highlights? What are you looking forward to most? So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone. We've got over 40 speakers and that was that was one of my aims is to bring diversity to the platform, um, to get everybody involved because if we're all going uh, along to current concepts, we should all be part of it. And as, and as a society, we should embrace everyone. We should showcase everyone. And we should showcase what we have in the UK um, with regards to our clinicians, but also invite in some of our global speakers. So um, we have Sandeep Padwadan uh, from India. We've got Christina coming from Lisbon and Portugal. We've got Pablo, who unfortunately can't come uh, in person due to visa problems, but he's going to he's going to um, zoom in and have a question and answer session with us. And again, the um, the interest has been um, worldwide. Uh, we've got so we've had some interesting uh, registrants from Libya, from Egypt. So um, that will be really good. So so it'll be great to network to see um, all our colleagues, um, to, for it to be an educational three days, but also to have the fun. So Claire, you mentioned this problem that Pablo has got. I hadn't thought about this. Do we need to be applying for visas to come into Wales? Well, actually, the border now has dropped and it does allow people in from our next door neighbouring countries. It was up prior to the coronation, but we've left it down now. It so down yes, now. you know, on this occasion, you don't need one. You. And just looking at your bio, last question that we do have to talk about some journals. Have you ever worked in a place that doesn't have Wales in its address? Um, <laughs> well, you know, my cultural roots run deep. Right. So I can honestly say no. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, I think it's time to move on, guys. Um, <laughs> right. So, Claire, your paper. Tell us about it, please. So, one of the things I didn't mention is my lifelong crusade with hip dysplasia. And so it would be amiss of me not to pick a paper that strived 
to 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 answer or contribute to the hip dysplasia problem. So so I picked an assessment of the impact of developmental dysplasia of the hip on patients' well-being. This uh, involved our one and only Dan Perry and a group from Harvard. And this was in the um, Open Bone Journal uh, this year sometime. Yeah, in Burn March. Joint but... journal, Burn and Joint Journal. Um, and it caught my eye um, because it tried, it attempted to qualify the effect of developmental dysplasia uh, of the hip um, and the impact on a patient's well-being. And so conceptually, there were a lot of new ideas in there that I wasn't aware of, looking at the global burden of disease and how you can almost rank an MSK disorder in relation to the disability it can infer onto an individual, thereby almost attempting to try and give it a weighting so that then you can go away and do health economics and cost effectiveness analysis and things um, on it. So it was really interesting. So they sent, the group sent out essentially questionnaires to a large number of not patients with hip dysplasia, but surgeons who treated a significant amount of children with hip dysplasia um, in, I think it was 38 countries. Um, and, and again, they used a number of what you can only describe as sort of public health methodology, utilizing strategies that I don't really understand which again is probably one of the um, criticisms of the paper because actually when they wrote up their methodology, they said, well, there's lots of ways to do this and there's lots, but we'll pick this one. So actually it's a very difficult paper to critique from a methodological um, point of view because actually they use concepts we don't, we have no idea the validity of anyway. So what they did was they sent these papers off and then they asked these surgeons to rank um, how, how, how severe the disease was and gave it a value. Um, they also asked the surgeons, if you, if you had to take some time away, some health, if you had to give away some of your longevity to have healthy, to live a healthy life, how much would you take away um, if you were given if you had DDH? So it's called um, uh, it was called a time trade off exercise. You take time off depending on the disease, basically. And conceptually, it's really difficult to get your head around that. I don't know if anybody else read the paper and could understand that methodology. That bit I couldn't understand. So there was the preference ranking where you're supposed to rank untreated DDH amongst other medical conditions, but I couldn't see which ones they were. Yeah, no, but and they didn't trade. state that. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, the time trade-off. So the number of years of full health that a person would be willing to trade for a life lived with DDH. Uh, it's almost like one of those philosophical questions, isn't it? Would you rather have this or have this? Or that, yes. mm. Yeah. So I, 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 I looked for the list in the supplementary material, but you can't find the supplementary, <laughs> supplement, <laughs> which, which is, maybe that's, maybe there's a reason behind that. <laughs> right. Um, and basically the, the upshot what was that they came out with a disability weighting. So um, how much impact uh, DDH would have on the, on the quality of the child of, of that individual's life. And the disability weighting came out equivalent to other severe MSK-related uh, lower limb disorders. Um, the other thing, the other thing that actually that was that was quite interesting is again they have a metric that that actually that you can see how that impacts depending on the society or the or the country that you live in. 
And, and yeah. actually, that that's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because DDH in Wales is not the same as DDH in Morocco or DDH in Mexico. And the impact that has in in society for for that individual is different. And I think I hadn't quite thought of that before. And to be able to quantify and qualify that is a really interesting concept. So, so for me, in, it introduced a lot of new concepts for me in this paper. Methodologically, I can't give you, uh, I can't give you an opinion because I, I don't really know anything more about it. So I can't critique it from that point of view. I think, I think it's an interesting start to try and and put a weighting on the burden of disease of DDH, both uh, for an individual and you know within within the context of a country my only thing is you don't start with a clinician treating the child truly and it'd be interesting to see if they did that exercise and compared it um with a clinician with the child and with the caregiver and see if they all matched up and then you would truly have a value that you you could use in healthcare economics in order to you know, and, and what we all want to do is to get resource in order to put, you know, the processes and the pathways in place to pick up this condition that we can treat much easier early on. Thanks, Claire. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to pitch in now. So a couple of things I wanted to say. So I agree. Interesting concept. Um, so that they, they they made sure that the clinicians that they interviewed treated DDH um, and knew about DDH, but they didn't check whether they knew about the other diseases that they were ranking against. Mm. And uh, some of them were MSK, so they probably did. The others were, were not MSK. So, you know, you're asking, is DDH bad? Yeah, yeah, really bad. What about some random syndrome or some other medical problem that you don't know anything about? Well, probably not that bad. DDH is worse. So a bit of inherent bias there. And then you're also asking people in places which have universal screening. So uh, in a few of the countries, so they're not actually, they don't see untreated DDH. Um, so then I'm not sure how well they are placed uh, to rank things. And the fun of this TTO, uh, the time trade-off, through the paper, they actually realized it was a bad idea and then ditched it from their final analysis. So, so uh, interesting concepts. I don't know. Anish, what did you think? I think, as you guys said, I can see what they're trying to do, and hopefully it's going to form the basis and foundation for justifying further work into picking up this condition early. I actually looked up the Lancet publication, so where they did some of this other work with, with these other conditions, and they had over 200 conditions. And so in this paper, uh, this uh, actual final figure that they gave it, so I think one of my criticisms first before I say that was that there were 116 surgeons from 38 countries, which sounds pretty good. But the problem is when you break it down by country, there were 27 in the US, six in the UK. So can you really give it a utility weighting, which is what they called it when you're trying to break down what it means in each country? Some of the countries had one or two surgeons answering. So I think, unfortunately, at that point, the data starts to become weaker. Um, and then, yes, this disability weighting was 0.18. And you compare it in the Lancet publication, things that I found that scored 0.18 were moderate diarrhea, severe angina, decompensated liver cirrhosis, and amputation of one leg without treatment. And you just think, actually, as someone who has a vague idea about what those conditions are, I'm not sure I'd count moderate diarrhea as the same as decompensated liver cirrhosis. So this suddenly, this number really becomes meaningless, doesn't it, when you're actually comparing it to all these other things. So... Uh, hopefully it will help them achieve what we all want them to achieve. Um, but yes, I'm not sure it's going to be of any great use to us right now. But those people are far smarter than I am. So uh, I take my hat off to them and I'll just watch and wait to see what happens. Yeah. And it, it, I don't know if you guys came across the paper a few years ago where they said having a hip fracture was worse than death. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I think that related to some of these measures. Um, you know, it's probably pretty bad having a hip fracture. Is it worse than this? <laughs> it's, in, it's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, neck of femur fracture acute also scored the same. It was actually a little bit higher than this. Whereas uh, femoral neck fracture with treatment scored much less than this. So, yeah, the numbers, it's a really interesting concept. Um, I just wonder whether 
in an ideal world you do it with many more people and you know I wonder what would happen if we handed it out to all of Biscos. but I think I'm going to be saying that with a lot of the stuff we discussed <laughs> right great thanks Glenn. So, so shall I go shall I move on to my research bites yeah okay so just a, just a few a bit of a mixed bag um today so first up the rock group research on osteochondritis dissecans the paper in American Journal of Sports Medicine um, from May, uh, Hayworth et al. out of Boston, the transarticular versus retroarticular drilling of stable osteochondritis discans of the knee, a prospective randomized control trial. So in this study, they had 91 skeletally immature children uh, with MRI proven stable medial femoral condyle OCDs. 51 were randomized to transarticular drilling and 40 to retroarticular drilling. So, the outcomes basically, the transarticular drilling was quicker, as you'd expect. The primary outcome measure was actually the PEDI IKDC score, and there was actually no difference between the groups. However, the uh, transarticular drilling group had better healing parameters, radiological healing parameters at six and 12 months compared to the trans um, retroarticular uh, group, and they returned to sport quicker. But at 24 months, there was no real difference, and there was no difference in the rates of secondary surgery. So both groups essentially did well. So they started with the PEDI IKDC scores around in the 60s, and they ended up in the high 90s. Interesting, a couple of points. So 22%, so almost a quarter of the um, of the retroarticular drilling turned out to be transarticular because they stuck a scope in afterwards and realized that they perforate. And, you know, we've all been there where you're like in the subchondral bone, you're like, oh, whoops, I've gone in a bit too far. So um, so that was interesting. But because it was done as an intention to treat thing, it stayed in the group it was meant to. So I still don't get my head around that fully, but that's apparently correct. Um, sometimes quite early intervention. So just after three months of non-operative management. So I suspect a lot of these kids were just going to heal anyway. But anyway, I, I, it's a, it a well-constructed study. And they also used larger K-wires for the retroarticular drilling. Uh, so not exactly the same um, um, treatment. But bottom line, both treatments are pretty good. Um, I think it's probably reasonable to wait a little bit longer from my perspective before we treat. And I, so I don't rush into it. I usually wait at least six months. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it hasn't really changed necessarily what I would do, but I'd be happy doing either, really. I suppose it means you don't muck around trying to do the uh, retro uh, technique when you know that trans is going to be just as good. But I guess that's what would be really interesting is actually randomizing to longer waiting and actually comparing, you know, because that's the big question, isn't it? How long do you wait for something to normalize? How long do you keep the kid off sports? And sometimes you find that actually things might not look better on an x-ray, but they're much better symptomatic. Even with the repeat MRI, you're still seeing some of those signs, but they're better themselves. So I think there's many questions there that still remain to be answered. Yeah, but a good a good study, uh, nonetheless. Um, so next up, um, so moving into surgical education, the uh, Journal of Surgical Education from May, Kirschetal, out of Colorado. So Global Surge Box, a portable surgical simulator for surgical training. So the background is that there's, as we know, increasing body of evidence of the value of surgical simul simulation. I was going to say surgical stimulation. I'm not sure what that is, but um, in training. <laughs> um, but there are issues, obviously, with accessibility. We read about that in the Times article a couple of weeks ago. Our patient move on. <laughs> That's what I use chat GPT for. <laughs> um, so with accessibility, affordability, and access of simula uh, simulation. So uh, particularly in lower and middle income countries. So... These, the authors of this paper have developed a lo-fi surgical simulator um, currently focused on general and um, general surgical and cardiothoracic skills. So the, the goal of this research was to investigate the barriers to surgical sim, uh, simulation and evaluate the global surge box. So their research involved 101 trainees from um, high, middle and low income countries. Um, the barriers to simulation were found to, across the board, commonly lack of time, <laughs> <laughs> lack of Sorry. time for surgical stimulation <laughs> there's never enough time <laughs> uh, so lack of time mentorship and convenient access uh, so they were all given a global search box and then subsequently 90% felt it was a good facsimile to being in theatre and this helped with obviously the barrier of convenient access they were only 25 bucks so pretty cheap so I see a lot of value in this co concept and also 
the evaluation of whether it's actually helpful or not. Because otherwise it might just be collecting dust on a shelf somewhere. And it's not inconceivable that something similar could be done for orthopedics. And I think there's some lo-fi arthroscopy um, kits and things and, and, and rolled out. But then it's important to evaluate um, the value of this and, and, and provide it to people who would benefit from it, uh, whether they're in high, middle or low income countries. So that was, that was good. And then um, I always tend to pick a heavy paper. So this is my heavy paper. <laughs> um, so Walker et al. Um, from Great Ormond Street published in um, May in the issue of the Archives Diseases of Childhood. Berosumab in the management of X-linked hyposphosphatemia. Retrospective cohort uh, study of growth and serum phosphate levels. So the reason why I picked this is that I've got a couple of little, like two, three-year-olds with X-linked hyposphosphatemia with significant deformity. They're just uh, starting or about to start on berosumab. And I know very little about berosumab, I'm gonna be honest. Um, but I figured that the medical management may impact when I need to intervene or if I need to intervene. So I thought this paper was interested. So Anish, tell, why don't you tell the audience, what is berosumab? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a medicine, uh, it's commonly <laughs> used. It's just, we can now use it in X-linked hypophosphatemic <laughs> rickets. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, it's a MAB. It's a MAB. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. Antifibroblasts. Oh, I didn't know that, Claire. Yeah. All the MABs are. All the MABs are monoclonal antibodies. Oh, man, there you That's go. That's why you there brought you me on. Exactly. I see. <laughs> so it's an antifibroblast growth factor 23 monoclonal antibody. And it's this growth factor that is dysregulated in X-linked hyperphosphatemia, uh, hyperphosphatemic rickets leading to tubular phosphate wasting and suppression of 1-alpha hydroxylation of vitamin D. We know about that, at least. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to summarize this quite quickly. Basically, this medication means that the kids grow and they actually, their Z scores improve over time. So they, they had 55 kids, 3.3 years uh, mean use of berosumab and their Z scores improve. So the key is that if they're growing, then hopefully, and their condition is being treated, then hopefully they can correct. The question is, when do I pull the trigger? How early? What's the earliest you've done guided growth? Well, you potentially, because it's it's a temporizing measure, you can put it in or take it out at any time. And I think um, if you look at some of the papers, they've done it at a really quite young age. Um, the thing about berosumab is watch this space because it's super duper expensive, but actually, it's been shown to to hold off the deformity in these children. So actually, if you've got children who are uh, two or three years of age, you may not actually need to do um, much guided growth in them if the baros if they're very responsive to the berosumab. It is actually I've got a number of children in our metabolic bone team, um, MDT who berosumab has been life-changing and it's good for their bone pain. It, it holds off the nasty deformities, particularly uh, the bowing that they have. And they also get this internal rotation deformity of their tibias. And so it might be that you won't need at all to, um, to use your guided growth. So watch this space. Because um, I've got, I've got, children at the moment who are on it, whose deformity is actually very, very minor. They do still have the mid-diaphyseal uh, femoral bowing, but but that's about it. So they're, they're slightly a bit wider, but apart from that, they're doing marvelously well. Interesting, great, thanks. So I'll, I won't be too aggressive in, uh, in treating these yeah, patients. I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise your berosumab uh, with a dunosumab. Have you guys heard of dunosumab? Yeah. yeah. See, yeah, that's also a MAB. It is. Well, now I know what MAB means. Uh, but yeah, so apparently, because we can't include every paper that we uh, read, but just as a little headline, uh, it is helping people with fibrous dysplasia, isn't it? It's actually uh, improving bone pain and remodeling in people with fibrous dysplasia. So I thought that was really interesting, but I don't want to include the whole paper. Right. Good stuff. So, um, okay, well, that's good MAB chat. Um, a final paper about deformity. So, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a stickler of a good, honest research 
and reporting sometimes negative research. You know, there's a general bias in journals to only report positive results. It's also interesting to find out what people do, you know, across the world. So that's why I wanted to comment on the article by Carol et al. Um, from Shriners, Salt Lake City, um, from JPO. I think it was March. Patient reported outcomes of adolescents treated with guided growth to correct idiopathic genivalgum. So in this paper, they report on promise scores and radiological measurements of children treated with distal, uh, medial distal femoral hemiapiphysiodesis. So they had a population of 53 limbs, 28 subjects. What was interesting was that the median mechanical LDFA of this before treatment was entirely normal. And also the promise scores for mobility and pain interference were above average. Nonetheless, eight plates were put in and removed quite quickly, average eight and a half, half months later. I guess you would re correct reasonably quickly if you started normally. Um, so through guided growth, the median um, mechanical LDFA became less physiologically normal, but luckily the patients had a bit of rebound after metalwork removal to bring them closer to normal levels. So, you know, nature abhors change. Um, so I think, I think this, this was a really valuable paper. It highlights the importance of evaluating one's practices critically and maybe adjusting things on the basis of an appropriate clinical indication. So I thought that was an interesting paper when I first started reading it, because I thought actually it's something that um, I do do every now and again, and I always wonder whether it's worth it. So you see these adolescents, you get their long leg x-ray, and they actually do have uh, a laterally deviated mechanical axis. They're about 13 they might be running with their knees swinging past each other because of that genuvalgum or they, they have problems with their knees hitting each other. And you're kind of thinking, well, is this worth doing? But maybe not so much for the here and now, but for later on in life, if you are going to correct that mechanical, uh, mechanical axis. But yes, I'm afraid that paper didn't really answer because that's why I was excited. I thought oh, this is going to give me the answer. And it didn't. But what do you guys do in that situation? Do you treat those people? I've got a, a whole group of them and they do correct fairly quickly actually compared to um, I think coronoplane um, angular correction corrects very nicely and yeah. very quickly whether again you kind of been taught that uh, a valgus knee is not a good knee in adulthood so you kind of think oh you've got a window of opportunity to do something fairly yeah. easily um, and again, if you're slightly heavier set, then again, you don't yeah. take away the driving force initially. So, so one of my learning points is, is always be careful if you're if you have a slightly heavier child whose genovalgum is a consequence to their their uh, body habitus, because again, when you take those plates out, their body habitus remains the same. <laughs> True. Um. So, but yeah. Find it actually quite a rewarding thing to do, uh, guided growth for gene of algum because it because it does correct nicely. And the patients and you, I, I never trust the patients. You're always worried that they're saying what you want to hear. Yeah, but they do seem to In, feel yeah. like there's a difference, um, which is what I was hoping this paper was going to show us. But as you say, Alpish, mm -hmm. uh, their pa their patients weren't quite like mine, so I can't use them to compare. <laughs> Okay, so those are, those are my papers. Anyway, I think we've got some in common that we're in, interested in discussing. Yeah, so, um, normally, we don't come across many that we both thought were interesting, but this time, uh, I thought what was interesting is they're not specifically orthopedic papers, are they? So I suppose if I kick off with the one about hypnosis, um, and this is going to catch you know anyone's eye, and I guess this is why it caught yours and mine attention, but the title was Hypnosis as an Alternative to General Anesthesia for Pediatric Superficial Surgery, a Randomized Control Trial. So this is a paper from Montpellier, and it's in the British Journal of Anesthesia. So remember, guys, we really do read through random journals for this. So I, I suspect most of our listeners uh, might not come across this paper. They looked at children between the age of 7 and 16 years old uh, who are having what they describe as superficial surgery that would take less than 60 minutes. So... Uh, they had 60 patients. It was largely excision of skin lesions, most of which were on the head. But in that group, there were three cases of removal of orthopedic hardware. And you were randomized by computer to either having a general anesthetic or hypnosis. In the general anesthetic group, you got pre-med and midazolam before surgery, had IV access, and then were given propofol. And I couldn't believe this, but in the hypnosis group, you had a 15 to 20 minute hypnosis session before you went up to theatres. In theatres, there was no venous access, nothing taken as a precaution. 
but you were the, the hypnosis was continued. Uh, all these practitioners, so the anaesthetists, I guess, had done a medical hypnosis course. Now, uh, one person out of the 30 who had hypnosis had to be switched to general anaesthetic. All patients were given local anaesthetic uh, as analgesia after the procedure. Interestingly, in the GA group, um, paracetamol and ibuprofen were given intravenously whilst it was oral in the hypnosis group. And essentially what they found was less time taken and less anxiety in the hypnosis group. And they found that the time on average from hypnosis induction to discharge from hospital was two hours versus four hours for a general anaesthetic. So the authors comment on the economic and also the environmental benefits, because clearly you're using many less plastics, you're using fewer chemicals. But man, I, this for me, I thought this was amazing. Um, I don't know if I can introduce this. I'd love to try and introduce that. I think you're right. I'm going to find a medical hypnosis course. Uh, we could use it for so many things. Uh, and in this current world of shortages, this sounds like the one thing that is uh, low on resource. But what did you think of it, Alpish? Because maybe I fell for a... Um... I, thought, I thought it was great. And and I'm, and I'm, pick, I'm picturing you now. So I'm going to a child go, look into my eyes, look into my eyes, not around the eyes, not around the eyes, but into the <laughs> yeah, eyes. Yeah. Now you're going under. Um, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's great. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. And I, it was almost too good to, to be true. I thought, yeah. um, and and uh, you know, it really piqued my interest. And I, 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 you know, even if we're not going to use it for surgery, but like MRI or something like that, it could be brilliant. You know? Yeah, yeah, I think it's got. And again, you could see how maybe play therapists for the for the MRI for removal of metals and as in you know pulling out KYs and some of what we do. Um, if we had a few people around the department who could do this, it would be awesome. Um, because hypnosis has, you know, I've heard about it being used in various settings and things in medicine, but have you guys come across it before? I think for addiction, it's quite good, isn't it, potentially? Yeah. But I think it was the anxiety as well, because, you know, sometimes um, the child has one bad experience and that's it. And then they're just every time they're in a healthcare setting, they're just really stressed and unhappy. So if you can uh, minimize that anxiety then that's only going to help you in the future as well not not only for whatever you're doing at the time so that's great yeah um so i think that is something i would love to try and implement in normal practice and in my in my world um and then did you want to talk about the uh, other paper okay uh, so yeah quick question for everyone here are you able to internalize and and accept success yes or no claire you're the special um, guest. I, I don't think I've ever experienced success. So I <laughs> Anish? Well, no, no. So, do you know, because um, obviously you're talking about imposter phenomenon. And I sometimes think I have it, but then I'm not sure. Yeah, fair enough. So, um, yeah, so if not, as it's, if you can't internalise and accept success, then you may have imposter syndrome. And um, this, alongside um, an intolerance of uncertainty, may lead to anxiety, low self-esteem, and loss of a joie de vivre. So these themes were explored by Lynn et al. Um, and the Science of Variation group, it sounds amazing, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. In their article titled, Imposter Syndrome Among Surgeons is Associated with Intolerance of Uncertainty and Lower Confidence in Problem Solving. So that was in core in April. So the group comprises uh, 200 upper limb surgeons and they take various undertake various surveys uh, every year. In this study, they had 102 mem uh, members complete the plants imposter phenomenon scale and the intolerance of uncertainty scales, which investigate the themes that I've just um, said. And the conclusions were that imposter syndrome is quite prevalent and goes hand in hand with intolerance of uncertainty. So not, not particularly surprising. So, so in the name of science, I completed said surveys and oh, it turns right. out that I have moderate imposter syndrome um, and my intolerance of uncertainty puts me in the uh, generalized anxiety disorder range. Um, so I guess, you know, I guess they're right. I guess they're right. Um, no, but, you know, I think that their point was that these things are modifiable and, and that actually, um, you know, exercising for an optimal inner narrative can sort me out. So I was thinking of Chris Akabusa, you know, to perform like Linford, you've got to think like Linford, you know, PMA, positive mental attitude. So I think there's hope for me yet. So what exercises would you have? To perform like Anish, I've got to think like Anish. Yeah, <laughs> I need a hair transplant as well. But <laughs> so, I thought it was an interesting paper. Um, they comment on some of the things there. So they're all hand surgeons, hand wrist surgeons. Uh, mean age of 52. 
uh, 81% were white, 89% were male. Um, and then they found no relationship, they say, between gender, race and imposter syndrome. But it would be difficult when your numbers don't really reflect a variation in gender and race. Um, but I did like what they were talking about with the cognitive behavioral therapy approaches for what you described as mindset training. But I guess, you know, one of my big questions was this whole intolerance of uncertainty. OK, so I think what they mean by that is some people don't mind uncertainty and some people find it hard. But where do you draw the line between that and insight? So actually, isn't it just sometimes some people think they know best and they're happy to carry on because they know all the answers, whereas other people might have a bit more insight, try and read the evidence and then sit there with all this uncertainty thing. Well, I don't even know what the right thing to do here is. So I think that was my issue with this paper. Um, it did raise questions about, you know, in terms of what we should be doing during training. Um, and I guess, Claire, you're a TPD in Wales. Do you guys take on any coaching or anything like this in terms of these areas and non-technical skills, but more than that, the kind of personality issues? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've been to a couple of lectures where they say, you know, if you're if you perform at a high level, you need you almost need psychological coaching um, because, you know, that's what sports people get. They go onto the pitch with a mindset that they're going to achieve and do things. And so they're they're prepped. And, and as and as surgeons, we don't really get that. And I, I've never personally had coaching um, or or CBT or psychological preparedness. And, and actually, you know, conceptually, it's out there for for all high, you know, high performing professions. But but we don't get it. And the, and the other thing what I've realized is actually as I'm getting older, my ability to deal with uncertainty is becoming worse, not better. Because actually your awareness of the uncertainty becomes much, much greater. So, yeah. so actually I'm probably now at a point in my career where actually I should be coached and 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 we should be giving our trainees the toolkit to make them aware. The other thing that's really interesting is where does dealing with uncertainty and imposter syndrome, neurodiversity, the way we process various things all that overlap and and again and we need to be aware of it and the fact that these papers are being published means that actually at least we can deliver now some of those concepts because you're right we we've started you know the non-technical skills conflict management etc they are much much more powerful skills than actual technical ability because everyone will defaults to achieve technical ability the rest of the stuff actually what makes you survive day to day yeah you're right i think that's what gets you in trouble or keeps you out of it um so i think uh it's work that needs to be done but i think my only concern with this was it was just a bit of a let's fill in some surveys uh and come up with some conclusions that were almost you know you could the two go hand in hand don't they mm -hmm. but Hopefully, people will build on the work that these guys have started so that we can come up with the, and then we coached people, and this is the improvement we saw. Right, so those are um, some of our papers. As always, so in terms of uh, current concepts, it was really interesting. I don't think we've ever come across a situation where suddenly uh, things had, you know, there's a bit of panic stations because a pop star is going to be performing in the same city as a course. And so... Claire, uh, I remember you've had to, you've negotiated to drop the, the kind of um, price for current concepts because the hotels in Cardiff did skyrocket, didn't they, as a consequence of one Mr. Harry Styles? Yeah, overnight. <laughs> the, the night Harry Styles is playing, the hotel costs went up threefold overnight. <laughs> See, that's power. But that's why, so in our questions that we put out to people, uh, this time round was favourite musician with the name Harry. So, guys, what are you going to say? So, Claire, have you thought about this? Who would you say? So, Harry Styles is not my favourite person at the moment. No, I can understand. Um, but we should tweet him to come along to our dinner after his concert and do a turn with the bandioki that will be <laughs> at the Hawaiian party. Anyway, I, I have been, it has been suggested we do that. Um, no, so 
Um, the first person that came to my mind was Harry Seacombe, because he's <laughs> Welsh. Yes, yeah. Highway. <laughs> yes. We'll keep a welcome in the hillside. But, but nothing he sang was, was original. So then my next favourite Harry is Debbie Harry from Blondie. And in oh. fact, I'm seeing her on Friday the 16th of June. No way. The Friday night before current concepts. How spooky is that? Because, <laughs> yeah, she is one of my favourite Harrys. I have to be honest, I didn't realise Blondie when I was little uh, was a group and not just her. Um, but yes rapture she she made she made rapping big uh in the the early 80s how about you alpesh favorite harry uh well after harry rama harry krishna was vetoed um (laughs) i uh i just wanted i don't know whether you realize that um bing crosby's name is harry no Um, harry lewis um so um you know i'm a sucker for white christmas i must say (laughs) (laughs) Just like Donald Trump. <laughs> and then how about you, Pranaya? Have you uh, moving on from the Prince? Uh, any other favorite Harrys? So I think Harry Styles is probably the most common one we had, but the masked wolf who had astronaut in the ocean last year, his name is Harry Michael. Ah, one of okay. his favorite songs. Right. And then we had Harry Nilsson. And I've never heard of this. This is from Emily Baird. Anyone know who Harry Nilsson is? No. No, no. So she's clearly got a niche music taste. We'll have to um, get her to sing it in her concepts, maybe. <laughs> and then I was going to add Harry Connick Jr. Uh, I think he's a very cool Harry. Uh, and if you've seen, seen When Harry Met Sally, uh, the soundtrack to that is very, very good. Um, I was introduced to that by my wife, actually. Uh, but his version of It Had To Be You is very, very cool. Right. So that's our little bit on Harry's. But quickly, if I did say favourite Harry Styles songs, what would you guys say? I only know one. Which one's that? Watermelon Sugar, hi. Hi. <laughs> Watermelon Sugar, <laughs> hi. Hi. <laughs> we are going to do that at karaoke at uh, Cardiff. <laughs> How about you, Arpesh? Um, you, oh, you know it it, Harry it really is hard to pick. I love them all. yeah yeah you know i hate to say this i have actually bought his last album uh i never thought i'd buy a harry styles album but i loved as it was and actually harry's house is quite a good album anyway uh not going to say anything more about that so moving on on to my bite sizes um first paper i was going to talk about was from chen atal from the mayo clinic in the american jbjs and I thought this was really interesting because they were looking, it's called normative femoral and tibial lengths in a modern population of 21st century US children. Now, I think it's quite a common sense thing. We all think that children are getting taller, don't we? So when you, you know, it's kind of, you look at today's population versus 50 years ago, we're much more well-nourished. We have a feeling that people are taller than they used to be. And I think there's good evidence for that. And so this group decided to look at tibial and femoral lengths in their current population and compare them to Green and Anderson's data, which basically forms the basis for all our measurements on limb length discrepancy and predicting empathysiodesis. So whether you use the Paley method, the Mosley method, it's that same data set. So Green and Anderson did their work between 1940s and the 60s. They used about 800 patients, and most of those had polio affecting at least one leg. What was very good, which you can never do now, is they just consecutively x-rayed those people just for the sake of research. Uh, can you imagine getting that through ethics right now? So what these guys did, what they their argument is that when you look at the WHO and the US CDC, they don't follow select individuals, but they take a whole load of individuals at various ages at one time point and then report percentiles. So that's what they did. They used a collection of their long leg radiographs and EOS, uh, excluding CP and other systemic diseases to look at how femur and tibia length uh, evolved now. So looking at these growth rates and final values. So they had 700 patients, 47% female, 54% male. Uh, That doesn't add up, um, but I'm sure that was their figures, not mine. And then what they did find is when you look at the means for femur length and tibia length at skeletal maturity, so in these children, it was about two centimeters greater than the Green-Anderson data. 
Um, so when you look at the graphs they produce, the rate of growth is about the same, but the final lengths are longer. And at every time point, the current population are slightly taller and longer than the historic data. And so quite rightly, they've concluded that actually using the methods that we do would probably underestimate the final length and possibly result in inaccuracy of epiphysiodesis timing. So you might think, oh, I'm going to do it at a certain stage, assuming they're going to grow a certain amount. But we have to be aware they're probably going to grow more than we think. And so I don't think we can use, they haven't produced any data that we can use to help us with our prediction, but it's something to be uh, aware of. So I thought it's a really good study, actually. It's as good as the Green and Anderson data in many ways. And it's probably the best that we're going to be able to do in current uh, times. They have explained that actually there's their population was a Midwest population from the US. So uh, it's not as diverse as we'd like. But that's going to be the situation with any of these series, unless we really go and get massive numbers. But I thought that was a good paper. How would you guys do in terms of epiphysiodesis? Do you believe it's an art, a science or both in terms of predictions? Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's just licked her finger and kind of feeling for where the breeze is coming from. Yeah. I, I do use, I try to use the, the Paley app to try and inform. I try to take... Um, uh, a natural history of the child uh, and a trajectory. Um, we don't we don't tend to do bone age. That's highly inaccurate, so it's not it's not necessarily worth it. Yeah. I try and use RISA as well. Um, kind of. Tr I I used to just use the app. Now I'm a bit a bit longer in the tooth. I try and use multiple sources of information to guide me because. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. And so, um, but if I ever do anything, I try to undercook it, not overcook it. Yeah. And how about you, Alpesh? Yeah, I mean, I, I echo what um, Claire just said, really. I think it's a, a dark art, really. Um, yeah. And it's this uh, juxtaposition between precision and accuracy. You can do all these apps, get all these numbers out, but still you there's a wide margin of error around that. And as long as the patients know about it and you're correcting something worth correcting, it's it should be okay. I think that's the thing, explaining that you're aiming. So, so for me, I say that we're aiming for a discrepancy at maturity less than two centimetres. Um, and then, yeah, I think this adds to another reason that we can't put all our faith in these numbers that come from a, a, a great piece of work, but a, a small series nonetheless. Um, so moving on, so that's my little deformity paper. Uh, I had a couple of papers about DDH, um, and I thought they were quite interesting because there's a bit of a contrast there. So the first one was from Terry Turgeson, uh, who, you know, he's a big name in orthopedics, and I think he's a great investigator. I think when you read his papers, right now he's in this process, isn't he? He's publishing these really long-term studies, which I think is really good, especially with DDH. You just think the problem is short-term studies aren't that useful. So this is called the natural history of acetabular dysplasia and later, later total hip arthroplasty in late detected DDH. 48 patients with closed reduction followed to a mean age of 62 years. Um, and essentially what he did was look at uh, the patients that he treated between 1958 and 1962. The age of diagnosis was between six months and three years. Uh, they kept them on skin traction to begin with. Mean traction time was 33 days. So can you imagine a month in hospital on traction? And then they performed a closed reduction. This was 48 patients, 57 hips, a so bilateral in nine patients. They used a hip spiker for nine months, which was changed every three months. And what they found was a small number of patients had to have, uh, so 10 patients had a proximal femoral osteotomy at about mean age of 13 years. They excluded any patient that had a pelvic osteotomy because what they wanted to see was, well, what residual acetabular dysplasia do you have and how many of those guys are going to have THA, so total hips. And what they found was they divided them into three groups, the dysplastic, uh, who had centroid angle less than 20 degrees, um, and then the borderline, who were 20 to 25, and then the normal. And then they found that out of 18 hips with a CE angle of less than 20 degrees, 11 had THRs. At 100, it was at age 40, 100% was still functioning, 83% at 50 years, and then 39% at 60 years. So a massive drop between the ages of 50 and 60. In the hips with borderline dysplasia, survival rates were high. So they were 95% when the patient was age 50, 
and 80% at age 60. And they basically said that um, they compared their population to some studies where, who've, where patients have had PAOs. And again, even in that study group, they compare three patients groups with PAOs. And between age 50 and 60, you can see there's this massive drop in survival. And they also reference Simon Thomas's paper from uh, Toronto, where what they found with the open reduction in Salter osteotomy was survival rate falling from 99% at age 33 to 54% at age 48. So I thought this was a really interesting paper because I know a lot of people have moved away from closed reduction. I, I still think a closed reduction is a really good thing. I think it's because of the people that I trained with. Um, and I just, I think it works. What about you guys? Have you abandoned closed reductions? No, it's no. one of the mainstays of early treatment of DDH in our unit. And we've had, you know, pretty good results with it. I'm not saying it always, but I certainly think it's a it it's it's in the armamentarium of early treatment of DDH. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean I think what was interesting is the duration that they're keeping them in psyche. Yeah. And actually one of the papers I almost chose, the one uh, from China, Thuatao, looking at femoral head docking after close reduction. I mean, similarly, they were keeping their their babies in spiker for a really long time, uh, really long time, longer than I would. And you know, it makes me think maybe I need to increase how long I'm keeping them in spiker for. But. Yeah. And I think this is the thing. I think when you look at how long they had them on skin traction, Southampton is the only unit that I know that right now uses skin traction preoperatively. And I was thinking maybe we should go back to that. And yeah, a hip spiker for a re very long time. I do put them in a abduction brace. Uh, so I do six, six, and then six in an abduction brace and then nights and naps, but that's not the same as this. But I think what this, for, them, for me, this study shows that there's still a role for close reduction. I think despite those differences, uh, there have been other studies, so the one from Stanmore that showed that there is a role there as well. So, but with that long-term follow-up, I thought it's great. Uh, and we need papers like that with DDH. Um, we know there are differences. We don't understand the condition and that's going to be the problem and everyone's doing things differently. And so, so having said all that, moving on to my other paper, which was a, a pre prospective multi-center study of developmental dysplasia of the hip. What can patients expect after open reduction? So this is from the JPO. And it's from the guys, uh, the Global Hip Dysplasia Registry. So the lead author was Kiani, but you've got big names on there. You've got Kishore Mulpuri, uh, Upasani, and Woody Sankar. And basically, the purpose of this study was to assess their early outcomes of open reduction for DDH. Now, I have to say, when I read the paper title, I thought this was going to be just open reduction. Uh, but actually, a lot of their patients had um, osteotomies as well. So 232 hips from 16 units in six countries. Median age was 19 months, ranging from 13 to 28 months at um, operation. Most patients were IHDI4. Um, but a small number were two and three. What was really interesting is 56% had adducted tenotomies and 53% had psoas tenotomies. For me, every patient who's going to get an open reduction is going to have those two things done. So that was a little bit like, oh, okay, that's unusual. 39% had pelvic osteotomies, 33% had femoral osteotomies, and 23% had both. So basically, most of their patients had one osteotomy at least. Despite this, 30% needed further surgery. They had a 7% dislocation rate, most happening within a year. Median time was 100 days. They looked at proximal femoral growth disturbance as a binary. You either had it or you didn't. And I understand why, because they were trying not to get kind of bogged down in the classifications. What I really liked was um, they decided on that by the most recent follow-up x-ray, with independent blinded assessment by three study group members. Because I think we all have our kind of blinkers on, don't we? When we look at AVN, it's like, oh yeah, no, no, there's none there. So I think what this tells me is this paper is an honest paper. And those figures are definitely honest, aren't they? What they found at the risk factor, so uh, proximal femoral growth disturbance, 43%. Okay, so that's pretty high, but believable. And the risk factors uh, in their univariable analysis were older age at open reduction, performance of an adductor tenotomy, which is a bit of a strange one, a pelvic osteotomy or a femoral shortening osteotomy. And quite rightly, the authors said, well, these are probably proxies for increasing diver uh, disease severity. Um, and the bit I didn't like was the residual acetabular dysplasia. So they looked at uh, residual acetabular dysplasia 
They used the one-year post-op x-ray in patients who had pelvic osteotomy and the two-year post-op x-ray in those who didn't. And which group do you think had less residual acupabular dysplasia? The ones where the pelvis was fiddled with or not? Um, and I think for me, and they have said this is the short-term results, I think the acetabular index is something you've got to look at over time, isn't it? Um, because I think two years is too soon. So I, I wouldn't put too much story in that was my take on that. But I thought I, I liked this paper because it is multi-center. They've been very honest with their figures. And I think when we're using, uh, when you want to counsel patients, this is probably good data to base your counseling on. It's a mixed bag, but so is DDH, isn't it? I thought, yeah, I think that's, it was a good paper. I think one thing I found interesting was about the public harness, that it was, wasn't that protective? For, protective, yeah. yeah. Whereas I, I always think... feel that these are bad hits when they, they fail public, they fail close reduction, then you move on to open reduction. And then... So they did say these results were worse than their closed reduction group that they've looked at before. I guess the only thing is, because they'd failed a public, they were perhaps picked up earlier. So they were the younger patients and maybe that's why they had the better outcome. So uh, association rather than anything right. else uh, is how I um, made sense of that because you're right, otherwise it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Um, and then, yeah, my last paper, which I think is something that would influence practice really, is return to sport after forearm fractures in children. So this was, and it's called a scoping review and survey. So it's in JCO, Journal of Children's Orthopedics, uh, by Banu Shali uh, et al. From, Ad and from Adelaide, the children's hospital there. And how do you guys do this? When you're looking after your fracture patients, Claire, how do you decide when someone can go back to sport? So our general advice is um, usually they have to have a full range of movement and they have to be able to bear their full body weight through their upper limbs before they can they can proceed to, to I, I, and then we have to simulate them kind of doing a press up <laughs> and say, when you, if, if you couldn't do it before, then you can't go back anyway. No, but, um, but if you can do this sort of thing, then, and you've got full range of movement, then you can go back to sport. So have you had anyone, any awkward moments where they try this in your clinic room and then snap? And they go snap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, de I generally tend to tell them they've, um, it's about three to four weeks after distal radius fracture, depending on if they've regained those. With a forearm fracture, because the rate of mid-shaft forearm fractures, refracture is about six to 16 to 17 weeks, depending on what you read. Yeah. I hold them back for a little bit longer. Um, and again, if they do play high level, if they do play sports, then I do advise that they go on vitamin D when at the time when they've broken because again they're the ones that are going to be chomping at the bit to go back to sport a lot earlier yeah um and i think so you know you've kind of summarized what they found in their survey so oh. <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were two parts to this study first they were looking uh the literature review was to try and find existing published recommendation return to sports after pediatric forearm fractures and the second part was to find out what current paediatric orthopods in the Australian Paediatric Orthopaedic Society and IPOT, the International Paediatric Orthopaedic Think Tank, thought about this. So their question was, what are the recommendations for return to sport after forearm fractures in children? Unfortunately, as you can imagine, essentially they found not very much evidence out there. So in terms of the literature review, something that, so the one solid thing I could take away from this was buckle fractures four weeks in most studies and one study found that 95 percent of children were back to full activities by two weeks um and i always flip with buckle fractures like, you know, it's kind of like the orthopedic six weeks uh, and you think okay that's safe uh, maybe i'll reduce that to four weeks now with the survey what they did was they asked participants to rate the extent that patient age gender fracture stability treatment method and level of sporting competition would affect their recommendations for return to sports on a scale from zero to ten and if I'm honest, that just sounds like too many variables, doesn't it? You just think, well, it's going to start plucking numbers. Um, and then they showed the participants preoperative radiographs of uh, various forearm fractures and asked them to make recommendations for time after initial injury in weeks or months before return to sport could be allowed. The assumptions were that participants would treat their fractures however they wanted to, 
and the child was involved in sport requiring a moderate level of upper body force and a moderate risk of falling. Um, and the child was nine years old because they thought this was like a midpoint for pediatric forearm fractures. And I think when you when you read those things, you suddenly lose a little bit of faith in the paper because actually it's not the pre-op x-ray that's going to tell you everything. It's going to be the post-op. And, and again, it's about how you manage it. So someone in a forearm plaster is probably, you know, I'm going to be a bit less keen to send them back to sports sooner than someone who's got elastic nails in their arm. Um, and that's essentially what they found. So buckle fractures, in terms of the evidence, we talked about four weeks, metaphyseal fractures, uh, the evidence, the literature says five weeks to 12 weeks after cast removal and both bone, uh, the evidence says five weeks to three months. So, you know, uh, that's a massive range. In their survey, 64 participants, they said average six weeks for buckle, eight weeks for green stick forearm, 12 to 15 weeks for a complete forearm. Um, and so unfortunately, the conclusions that the authors make seem to be without any solid evidence. Um, and as I said, my biggest uh, criticism of this paper was they don't take into account the treatment given. Because I'll be honest, I actually have a lower threshold for sticking elastic nails into forearms where I think people are going to want to return to sports quicker because then I'm a bit less worried about getting them back to those things. Um, and those are the bits where looking at the patient in front of you make a big difference, don't they? Um, but yeah, that's my little bite-sized papers. So can I say that's going to change practice? Yep, four weeks for buckle fractures, but everything else, uh, I think Claire said it. Right. Um, and that's our lot. I think we've discussed everything. Any last comments on current concepts, Claire? Be there. <laughs> or be square. Or be square. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. There's going to be lots of fun. Bring your trainers, bring a yoga mat and bring a Hawaiian outfit. I've How do people before. register, Claire? Register on the Doctors Academy website. I know some people have found it a little bit difficult. Um, also, Biscos will tweet the QR code um, and the link in the next couple of weeks. And we'll put it in the show notes too for anyone who wants to sign up and listen to this. Perfect. Um, right. So, Claire, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure uh, and it's been entertaining as we knew it would be. Um, <laughs> and we look forward to seeing you. So, yeah, just over a month's time in Cardiff. I'll get my Hawaiian shirt packed. Brilliant. Looking forward to welcoming you all. And we will be able to listen to Harry Styles across the across the wall. Right, great. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, take care, guys. You'll find the show notes, uh, as Pranay said, with all the papers. Um, so enjoy. Thank you. <laughs>